works out for me. Uh, I think we've all seen how that goes wrong. But, uh, so uh, part of the, am I coming through here? Good. I'm going to assume I am. I'm just going to go with it. If I'm not on, I'm on. Okay, so uh, one of the biggest struggles, uh, well, one of the struggles I struggle with with the sermon is uh, trying to prepare it and uh, getting it ready. I mean, like, I spent all this time researching, and I've got all this research, and I still have two pages of stuff I cut out of it, uh, which is so sad. And I, st I still have eight pages, so we've really got to get going through this. Uh, or seven pages, and I, I do not have time for my tablet here to tell me it's not going to work, uh, like it's saying right now. Let me give this a quick try, and then otherwise I might be clicking. Okay, this might work. Okay, uh, one of the other biggest struggles I have is, is the title. I always try to find the title, and I always try to have a funny intro. Uh, and so I'm thinking through the title, how am I going to be funny in the intro? And so I was like, okay, title, what am I going to do? So I, I came up with some titles. We're going to be talking about uh, false teachers today. And so, you know, we got protect the flock, you know, sheep and wolves clothing. That's that verse from Matthew. Uh, I was like, what else could I do? You know, the, the wolves, uh, false teachers, what are we going to talk about? I was thinking, I mean, who let the dogs out? Who, who, let the, who let these teachers come out here and say these false things? And then these false teachers, they're... Uh, Little, they're, they're sly, uh, and you know we're trying to figure out what they say. We're trying to disprove them. So, uh, what does the fox say? Uh, but and but I, I just kept with my normal title here. Uh, but like I said, we're going to talk about false teachers. Uh, false teachers would not be a new concept for the church. Uh, there were a lot of common schools of thought uh, that Paul and Peter and all those people were facing when they wrote their books, talking about them. So I'd like to go over kind of the biblical context of what Paul and Peter would have been writing to. Uh, here were some of the common uh, thoughts uh, in the day. Uh, Marconism, uh, it's this idea that there's this Old Testament God. He's this vengeful God uh, of judgment, and he's called the Demiurge. Uh, he, uh, he creates the world and is inferior to the benevolent God, uh, the, the supreme God of the gospel that sent Jesus Christ. So there's, there's these two gods. This idea comes from this guy named Marcon of Sinope. He saw only some of Paul's writings in a very heavily edited Gospel of Luke as, like, the truth. So he ignored all the other writings of people. We have uh, Arianism. It's, the, it's this view that Jesus was a finite created being with just some divine attributes. He was not eternal and was not divine or uh, uh, in and of himself. Uh, and then there's others like Docism and Stabilism. But uh, by far the most popular in Paul's time would have been Gnosticism. Uh, it's similar to Marconism. It's the belief that creation was always evil. It was created by a secondary power called the Demiurge again, who was created by Sophia and Archon, or translated a power, and these powers were created by God as a non-physical being, created the Demiurge, made the world. So this other beings made the world. The world is evil. Uh, and then there's, a, so there's this idea that there is this piece of God, uh, <laughs> I think of it like a Zen, uh, that was, that's activated by Jesus with this secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge was only known to a few people. Uh, some believe that Judas Iscariot knew this secret knowledge, uh, and that would enable the soul to adventure onto salvation itself. <coughs> so these were, these were what uh, Peter and Paul were talking to. These kind of beliefs is what uh, they would be, have been writing about uh, in their letters to all the churches. So let's begin with one of those letters. Let's uh, begin in Second Peter, verse 2. It says, 
But there are also false prophets in Israel, just as there are false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even die the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teachings and shameful immoralities, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies but to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. Uh, so we're going to pause here, and we're going to take note of where these false teachers are coming from. Peter says they come from the church. They come from among us. Uh, and that echoes what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15. It says, watch out for vicious wolves disguised as harmless sheep. And Jude talks about these people having wormed their way into the church. So these ravenous wolves and these worms, uh, they teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who brought them. They bring sudden destruction on themselves, slander the truth with evil teachings and shameful immorality, make up clever lies, and will be destroyed. And, and keep that mind heresy. Keep that word heresy in your mind. We're going to come back to that in a second. But we're going to go back in a second. Peter, pick up at verse 12. Uh, it says, These false teachers are like unthinkable animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They scoff at things they do not understand, and like animals, they will be destroyed. Their destruction is, is their reward for the harm they have done. They love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They are a disgrace and a stain among you. They delight in deception even as they eat with you in your fellowship meals. They commit adultery with their eyes and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin and are well-trained in greed. They live under God's curse. They have wandered off the right road and follow the footsteps of Balaam, son of Bor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. Peter calls these people unthinkable animals, creatures of instinct who are to be destroyed. And then Peter gives, goes on to give some examples. These are people who are who publicly indulge in evil pro, uh, pleasures, who attempt to deceive you while disguised as one of us, who commit adultery with their eyes and are insatiable. They lure the weak faith people back into sin, and they love to earn money by doing wrong. I don't know if you guys can feel this, but it's clear that Peter is very passionate about this. And I love how the ESV translated it in verse 14. It says, accursed children. Uh, one study says this was probably a well-known Hebrew word meaning curse of a child. I think it might be referring to them maybe being careless as children. Uh, or the study says that this might be referring to them being children of the devil. Either way, uh, it's clear that Paul knows they will not inherit heaven. And he's very passionate about this. So we'll jump back in there, uh, this last section here in verse 17. These people are as useless as dried up springs or a mist blown away in the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting, with an appeal to twisted sexual desires. They lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from the lifestyle of deception. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to sin and corruption, for you are a slave to whatever controls you. And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then they get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would have been better for them it would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, and another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. Peter calls them useless and doomed to blackest darkness, that they brag about empty and foolish boasting. Peter is really emphasizing the seriousness of this topic in this whole section of his letter. And then he kind of circles back to those lured by the faith back into sin, but it's more focused on the people who fall away. He says they are worse off than before and that it would be better if they had never known the righteous than to know it and reject it. Reject the command they were given to live a holy life, like a dog to its vomit. So what can we do? Uh, what can we do about these false teachers? 
Well, let's actually read that Matthew 7, 15 through 16. He says, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruits, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? It says to beware them and to show how you can identify them by using their fruits or their actions. Later in Matthew 16, Jesus says to watch out for the, the deceptive teachings of people, specifically the Pharisees and Sadducees. But I think we can apply that to false teachers, uh, which is what those would have been in Jesus's day. So our first step is, is clearly we got to identify these people. You know, you got to be on the lookout. Beware of these false teachers. And then in 1 John, it says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if their spirit comes from God, for they are many, there are many false prophets in the world. We have, to, we have to test them to see what God says. And what's the best source for what God says is, of course, the Bible. If someone is saying something, you've got to compare it to the Bible. And we can test them also by their fruit, as it said in Matthew. So once we've identified them, we've got to test with what they say to see if they truly are a false teacher or not. And then in Acts 20, Paul is talking to an elder of the church. He says, so guard yourself and God's people. Feed the shepherd and God's flock. Feed and shepherd God's flock. His church purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Now, obviously, he's... He brings up the idea that the false teachers come from the church, but also, uh, and this is what the ESV says, pay careful attention to yourself and to your flock. Paul is specifically calling for elders to pay attention and watch out for these vicious wolves who distort the truth. So once we know who we're, who we're against, who these false teachers are, we have to protect the flock. So it's clear that we need to watch out for these false teachers, especially as an elder or a pastor. But how do we do that? How do we protect the flock? How do we keep... Uh, new converts and children from being tainted by these uh, these thoughts? Well, I think the answer is the same way we do with all darkness. In Ephesians 5.11, it says, Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. I think our next thing, once we, once we have identified them, is we should expose them uh, and bring them to the light. Uh, and let's look at what Paul says and did about false teachers. Paul wrote, do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it's confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. Now, don't worry. Paul is just talking about elders. He's not saying to bring a, a kid or a follower of these people, but to bring these teachers in front of the church to reprimand them. These are standards that we should hold to our elders, pastors, and church leaders. And notice the requirements uh, of the reprimanding. There needs to be witnesses. Evidenceless claims should not be taken seriously, but repetitive violations with many witnesses should be taken seriously. And Paul was clearly not afraid of this. Many times in the Bible, here's four examples, where Paul was writing to Timothy, exclusively it looks like, uh, about these false teachers. Here's Demas, a lover of all things. He, he would name them. He would say what they were doing. He named one guy twice. Uh, so clearly, Paul was not afraid of this. And I mean, thinking logically, how are these new converts and these kids, these people who aren't super into the Bible, they don't have the full understanding, how are they supposed to know what these false teachers are? You tell them. And so as Paul did with his, in his day, I'm going to go through what I believe to be some of the biggest false teachers in our day and era. I want to go through some of these examples that I believe, um, as being a substitute pastor, I should do as being a good shepherd. Uh, so let's, let, but 
first I want to talk about these heresies. So, uh, you know, in 2 Peter 2.1, uh, we see the term destructive heresy. Uh, and the good old M-Dub defines that as an adherence to a religious opinion contrary to church dogma. Dogma just meaning uh, a doctrine. So subscribing to a doctrine that is contrary to what's considered the right by most people. Uh, a commentary says it's denying the, the doctrines God has given and dividing the body he has created. And another commentary, uh, more simply put, any teaching which contradicts or twists the truth. And considering the scripture we've just read over in Second uh, Peter, it's very clear that this is a weighty claim. This is a very serious offense to call someone a heretic. Uh, and because of the implication of people calling, uh, calling people heretics, as I have done with every sermon, uh, I've done a lot of research and reading, especially in the Bible, uh, in order to not make evidenceless claims. Uh, and I'd encourage anyone to check my facts uh, if you don't think I have it right. Uh, so we're going to start off with a kind of a, it's kind of a, a nuanced one, I would say. We're going to start with uh, uh, Bill Johnson. Uh, he is the founder of Bethel Church. Uh, and one of the things I found that I think is odd at best, that he said, he, he thinks that it's always God's will to heal. He says, quote, when he bore stripes in his body, he made a payment for our miracle. He already, de he already decided to heal. There are no deficiencies on his end. All lack is on our end of the equation. The only time someone wasn't healed in the Bible or in the Gospels is when the disciples prayed over them. Well, just looking at the Bible, that, that would just seem false. I mean, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is pleading with God, please remove this thorn from my flesh. But God says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And what about Job, who very sick. I mean, he lost everything to sickness, to disease, to all this stuff. I mean, it just wouldn't, that doesn't seem to line up. And I don't think it takes a psychologist to see how Bill's teaching could be interpreted in a very dangerous manner. So, you know, imagine I'm, I'm new to this. I go to his church. I hear this message, you know, God always wants to heal. Healing's the, at human's fault. So I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I'm like, well, man, you know, my grandma, she got cancer and she died. Well, was that because I didn't pray enough, you know. I could see how a believer, you know, it, was it was it my fault? You know, I, I can't believe I would have let my grandma die. I mean, that, that's crazy. I mean, and even if we were to take his his position as a metaphorical stance, you know, maybe Bill means that humanity, human nature is at fault, not just humans by default. I think he should have made that position a bit more clear in his quote and on the research I did. And there's so many other accusations and crazy things that Johnson and his followers have said, supported, have done, uh, such as a supposed grave soaking or attempting to speak into existence bone and joints into a hip. Uh, one interview, he, uh, he said that he was talking to a person who said that they didn't have enough faith. And he said, I have enough faith for both of us. And I don't think that's how faith works. I don't think that's biblical. So I lost where I was. I encourage you all to make, of course, your own scripture-based judgments, but from my perspective, Bill Johnson is a dangerous teacher at best and a heretic at worst. And if only I had enough time to talk about Bethel's music, because uh, there's that whole, that is that whole conversation about what about their music brand, but you'll need to use your own judgment research because I don't want to talk through your guys' lunch. Uh, the next, next we're going to talk about some organizations that are going to obviously have a bigger following, uh, an estimated 15 million. Uh, Joseph Smith, he's the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church, or just more typically called the Mormons. 
Uh, Joseph Smith was a self-entitled prophet. He died, as all other prophets do, in a gunfight, escaping prison after an armed mob tried to free him. He's a man whose visions on polygamous relationships is similar to that of a cult leader. Uh, his ability to translate text has been questioned. You know, he was given this gold thing from God that he, he translated. He's been, he's been questioned on his ability to translate. And his ability to translate the Bible, he wrote his own version of the Bible. He just took the King James Version and rewrote it how he saw fit. That's not translation uh, at all. He's a prophet who, according to a newspaper at the time, was discovered to be dressing as an angel to fulfill his own prophecies promised to his new converts. In a Scooby-Doo-like scandal, some young men physically wrestled the angel-dressed visionary into the lake and unmasked him to his followers. The Book of Mormon has laughably zero physical evidence, as it was conveniently taken away, relying on the words of one guy to be the authority of God, or, you know, God. The book has countless examples of being historically inaccurate and biblically contradictory, and it's clearly written by a man not inspired by God. And I could say the same thing about Jehovah's Witnesses, who deny the divinity of Christ, deny the personhood of the Holy Spirit, teach false prophecies that never happened, and add words to the Bible. I mean, in their magazine, they published that missionary work would be completed in our 20th century, you know, during the 1900s. And then in their, when they published their missionary work, uh, then they published, they printed a 1989 bound volume, and they maybe realized that the world wasn't going to end in that century, so they just changed it to in our day. Uh, you know, that was probably impossible for the old prophets. I mean, imagine Isaiah's like, okay, Jesus is going to be born in Jerusalem. And then it's like, oh, snap, he was born in Bethlehem. I got to go tell my publicist to change that on the next version of my edit. I mean, that's not, that's not how that worked. That, that didn't happen. Neither did missionary work end in 1999, nor did Armageddon happen in 1914. Going back to the Mormon church, it's statistically considered by most outsiders to be a cult. And an organization that disfellowships you for disagreeing, holds your family hostage afterward, and throws you alone in the world, causing mental health issues or risks, like the Jehovah Witnesses are known to do, could be argued to be a cult, although that's more debated. Revelations 22 uh, says, And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words and prophecies written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add that person in. God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share from the tree of life and the holy cities that are described in this book. The Bible clearly prohibits additions to the Bible. And then in Deuteronomy, it gives this great advice. If a prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but, the predictions, but his predictions does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. That prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. These organizations teach prophecies that didn't come true and out of the Bible in ways that suit their beliefs. This alone, not even considering their questionable history and ethics, qualifies their beliefs as unbiblical and their teachers as false prophets. Now, my next topic, my next example, is actually something we kind of touched in Sunday school over at the uh, young adults area, uh, is this idea of progressive Christianity. Uh, and some of these progressive Christians are so progressive, it's hard to call them Christian. Uh, I found an example called Marcus Borg. He denies Christ, uh, Jesus' virgin birth, he denies the Bible is divinely inspired, and he de denies the divinity of Jesus Christ. With Borg denying the validity of Scripture, it's hard to critique his position when he won't believe most Christians' source of critique of the Bible. But for us, we all know that, it, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and corrects us when we are wrong, instantly proving that he's a false teacher. But more often, what you see these progressive Christians uh, supporting, which we also talked about in our Sunday school lesson, Bev was taking my thunder uh, was uh, these Christians support of the LGBTQ plus movement 
And I'm going to start off real quick with a verse from 1 Timothy. Some people may contradict our teachings, but these are wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such, such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. Paul brings up a common tactic that those who support the LGBTQ plus in Christianity uh, often seem to do. They say that the word homosexuality in the Bible is mistranslated or it was never there, you know, whatever, and that Paul didn't explicitly exclude spiritually healthy same-sex couples. Well, I've spent a lot of, lot of time on this topic. It's an abandoned ser sermon topic. You're welcome. And I've spent too long looking at both arguments. I think the Bible is clear on its stance. The mistranslation was actually a clever word invented by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 where he's referring back to Leviticus. And progressive, these progressive Christians are quibbling quibbling over the meaning of words. And I can understand that. Uh, I've fallen into deep caverns of research uh, and can give you another convincing example of a translation-based controversy. It's happened to me before. But we've got to have faith that, this, that the Bible is inspired by God and the hundreds, if not thousands, of translators who've looked over it over the years have studious transla translations and edits that are true to the author and the author's big A intent. So be aware of people like Reverend Brandon Robertson, who likes to twist the gospel to support the transgender or LGBTQ plus movement, or Michael Todd from Transformation Church, who is super popular in the culture but conforms to the world with worldly performances and stances on biblical topics. And I just wish I could dig more into these topics of these people. I don't have time because I'm already at, I'm already at seven pages. Progressive Christianity is all about applying morality to the Bible instead of deriving our morality from the Bible. They take a topic and find a verse that supports their view while ignoring everything else. They teach love without righteous judgment. They cite scripture without actually citing scripture. They hold their views of the gospel above the original intent, context, and meaning. They remove the authority from the Bible. They hold social justice over the importance of sin and its redemption. And they talk about the subjective truth. You know, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. But the Bible is clear on its position. Paul, I knew I was going to mess this word up. Polygamer, man, I nailed that word in practice. Polygamous. Relationships are incompatible with religious Christianity. Homosexuality is incompatible with biblical Christianity. And transgenderism is incompatible with biblical Christianity. Now, an important distinction. Just as Christians can struggle with pornography, alcoholism, drug abuse, self-hate, struggles of same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria are serious battles Christians can come across. And usually they're intertwined with more serious issues that the Bible directly addresses. Self-hate, abuse, trauma, depression. We have to approach people with genuine kindness and love. These people need our help, not our protest. Now we're going to move on to a topic that is probably the most popular topic when talking about false teachers, especially nowadays. That would be the topic of, oops, there we go, the prosperity gospel. So let's jump back into that verse uh, in Timothy and read the next line, 1 Timothy 6.5. These people always cause trouble, their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs to the, on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. These people who contradict the Bible's teaching also see godliness as just a way to become wealthy. And what does Jesus tell his disciples? Matthew 19, 23-24. Uh, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for the rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So obviously, we should probably be a little leery of these people that Jesus said 
it would be very hard for them to enter the kingdom of God, especially when they're the ones asking for donations that fill their pockets and fly in private jets. But the prosperity gospel isn't just about wealth. There's often this, this side of health. If you remember from, from before, that's not an uncommon idea. Uh, there's this idea, or maybe they justify it as a logical conclusion, that is spread around by these rich pastors that God wants everyone healthy and wealthy. But remember Paul, the guy who was often in prison, the guy who traveled everywhere, he probably didn't have a lot of money, was also had that thorn in his flesh that God wouldn't remove. So again, this perspective on theology is dangerous at best. And let's look at an example here. Very popular guy. He's actually been around long. I mentioned it to mom, and she's like, oh, yeah, he was doing stuff when I was young. So this guy's been doing this for a while. He's, in his, he's he, Benny Hinn, Israeli televangelist. He's big in the world of, uh, or on the topic of prosperity gospel. He's out there. He waves his hand from his stage. The first 12 rows are all falling down on the ground. Um, I mean, he's just, he, he claims to be this vessel of healing. People are getting healed, all this stuff. And, and I have no idea what's really happening in the terms of healing thing. Had a lot of paragraphs, had to remove it because it, it's so complicated and I don't have the answers. But I'd like to point people to his nephew. Uh, his nephew would have taken the mantle, uh, been the next 10 and inherited the legacy, but he was pulled into ministry elsewhere where he discovered the true gospel away from the unsavory prosperity gospel and word of faith movement. Hen's nephew is one of the biggest opponents to prosperity gospel, sharing how his time working with Hen is now clearly far from how a true biblical organization should act. So are these pastors bringing people to Christ? Maybe. The name it and claim it gospel and the idea that God provides health, wealth, and happiness isn't biblical and doesn't always happen. Sure, you might have happiness or health or you might even be wealthy, but it isn't promised. And you don't become wealthy, healthy, or healed because you give to Olstein or Hen's church. These boisterous pastors are dangerous, teaching a watered-down gospel and promoting the stories of success while actively discouraging the less marketable stories. And they're not the only ones. You could look up Kenneth Copeland. He's a crazy guy. You'll find something interesting. And, and maybe that's the most dangerous aspect. Uh, these pastors teach weak theology that can easily be confused and abused by the intellects of the world. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, through 4, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires, and they will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Some people just say things that people want to hear. They conform the gospel to the times. You want health and wealth? Bam! The Bible says to be rich. You want to marry the same sex? Bam! God is just a God of love. Just look at Joel Olstein and his watered-down gospel. He uses his platform to sell his books, gain donations to his church, and avoid controversial topics. Olstein speaks more like a motivational speaker than a preacher of the gospel, focusing on wellness, hope, and love. And all those things are good. I mean, we can be well, good, and loved, but... It's, there, there's another part. There, you know, a critical part of the Christian faith is that you're inherently flawed on a spiritual level. The biggest problem isn't that we're just fat and poor. Olstein is pressured to take back controversial statements and is hardly, if ever, talks about sin, condemnation, and hell. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking through, like, imagine, again, imagine that I'm just, this is my only connection to the gospel. I'm just watching Joel Olstein every night uh, or every weekend or whatever. And so, I'm, you know, God is love. God loves me. He wants me healthy and wealthy. Good always triumphs. But what happens when someone comes up to me and goes like, hey, why are you a Christian? You know, the Bible says that, you know, I'm not a Christian, so I, it says I'm going to hell. You believe the Bible's going to send people to hell? And then you, you're sitting there, you're like, well, shoot. Olstein never really talked about hell. You know, or my social media pastor or whoever else you're following that just tells you what, you, what, what feels good. 
Christians need to not be eating baby food theology for very long. There comes a point when every Christian needs to be fed spiritual substance to understand hell, God's judgment, and all the other unsavory aspects that show the whole true story. You've got to understand the whole scope. And been talking a long time, so we're going to go through some last few ones, but really quick. Jude 8, uh, 18 through 19, talks about people who cause division. A uh, quick example off the top of my head was the 6100 Methodist Church that have disaffiliated since 2019. Or maybe it's those people who like to be showy, oh, you're, this goes against my faith. You know, they're trying to cause division. They're trying to bring attention to themselves. Um, and then 1 Timothy 6, 20 through 21, uh, talks about irreverent babble. Uh, makes me think of those people who like to predict the end of times with their ra- radical revelations of uh, that unearth irrelevant discoveries and look at things that aren't there. They claim to have visions with times and dates. Oh, it's going to be next Thursday. Oh, it's in 2024. It's going to be this October. I mean, whatever. They, but, you know, Matthew 24, 36 says no one knows the day or hour. I mean, these people are just babbling on, fear-mongering, whatever their end goal is. In, in, in a side note here about just all these false teachers in general is, uh, <coughs> you know, they say, they say something wrong about one thing. We should probably be leery about what they think on other things. If they're a false teacher in one aspect, they may have a flawed theology in other aspects. And there could be an argument made that we should probably not financially support institutions that support false teachers or that are the false teachers. But we should also be open that false teachers could reform, you know, openly recognize, okay, I've been doing this wrong for five years. Uh, I recognize that. This is wrong. I'm going to start teaching right. They start teaching good theology. And we should also not discount someone just because they made a mistake once. You know, teachers who just mess up once, you know, they've been preaching for 10 years. They say this one thing once, and they come back and be like, oh, I said that wrong. That was my bad. This is actually the truth. Those people probably shouldn't be labeled as false teachers. They've corrected themselves. We should, you know, don't just discount someone after one thing. Uh, a person I brought up in uh, when I was teaching the Sunday school lesson about this topic uh, was Lonnie Frisbee. You might recognize his name from the movie Jesus Revolution. Uh, he had a very traumatic past, and later in life uh, he had some issues with it. I mean, so was he a false teacher? You know, what happened in his past? Did that influence when he was preaching? You know, that messed him up in his later life. I mean, it's, it's something you've got to consider, uh, I would say at least. Uh, there's likely a difference between tormented and confused because people do mess up. We all mess up. And intentionally leading people astray. It's a careful discernment between people who have issues that need addressed versus people who are maliciously trying to confuse you. So what can we do? We've gone through all these things. What can we do? Uh, you know, we've talked about identifying. We, we've, we're, is this person it? We test to see if it is. You know, we're, we're letting people know. We're exposing. We're protecting. What's, what, what's, what's the next thing we should do? I, I think the next thing, the last thing, is the most important part. Um, if we look back in 1 Peter 4, we see that Paul is talking to Timothy about false teachers. He's talking about how people will fall away and will follow deceptive spirits and teachings. He gives an example of people limiting what food can be eating, eaten, which is a view uh, that was common uh, among Jews and Gnostics. But as we know, the Lord explained to Peter, and Jesus said in Matthew 7, uh, that we can eat all animals. I mean... All food is uh, on the table. Uh, And Paul explains how they're wrong, saying, quote, everything God created is good. We should not reject any, but receive it with thanks. And he continues his next thoughts in this next section in 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 7. He says, if you explain these things to your brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Jesus Christ, one who is nourished by the message of faith and the good teaching you have followed. 
Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. So Paul's like, here are these false teachings. Here's the correct interpretation. And if you explain the correct things to these people, you are a worthy servant. So we need to correct those who are confused or being deceived. Even more generally in the Bible, 2 Timothy, it says, Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. And then in Titus 2.15, it says, You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary. So do so don't let anyone disregard what you say. That's it. That is what we need to do. That's the last step. The truth is always the best response to a false teaching. We need to correct them. And then, careful note, Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Correct them gently. These false teachers probably know they're being manipulative and sinful, but these false teachers usually have a following we should try to correct. So be that people who are unknowingly following false teaching or a false teacher who doesn't know what they're saying. You mean These people who are unaware of it could use our help and could use our correction. I mean, think back, think back to 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22, how bad it is for these people who know the way of righteousness, but then sin again, who get dragged back in. The followers of these false teachers need corrected. Jude 22, 23, and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Do not, nope, show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sin that contaminates their lives. Makes me think of the, the saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. Uh, these people are led by false teachers. These people led by false teachers need to be rescued. Jude talks about hating the sin, but having mercy on the person. So if that's from the extreme LGBTQ plus movement to those who are Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, if we are going to correct them, we need to do so mercifully and gently, remembering that you were once of the world and that everybody sins and that these people are still creations of God. And that's, that's probably what I'm trying to do here. That's uh, I'm trying to help, you know, if you've subscribed to these ideas, research what I've said, look into that, you know, do your own research in the Bible. I'm here to share these common ideas that these false teachers try to warm into the church, here to teach the false teachers you see today, you know, here's why they're wrong. I want to give you guys the tools and hopefully a decent example of how you can approach a false teacher uh, by identifying them, by testing them, by protecting, by exposing, by correcting, you know, is this person a false teacher? Okay, I think they might be. Let's test it. What does God say? What are what is the result of their teaching? What's all happening? You know, and then protect the kids, protect the new converts, keep them safe. You know, especially as a leader of the church, expose what they're doing is wrong. Explain to people why they need, you know, what they need, and correct them so that they ultimately correct them so that they can be saved, because that's the ultimate goal. I hate seeing these kids in the church drawn into radical new theologies. A part of my inspiration for this sermon was watching a documentary about the Siege of Waco in 1993. So many kids there were being abused, misguided, and indoctrinated by their leader, uh, Koresh. I can't imagine the kids growing up in a lifestyle that perverts the Bible. And now these kids are older, and their world is shattered with the loss of the only world, with their loss of their only world, because their insane leader told them that he was the new Jesus. It makes our job of evangelism harder, and it makes my heart hurt for these people who are so wildly deceived. And so many people are devastated when Benny Hinn doesn't pray over their terminally ill kid. So many people are mentally unstable and when disfellowshipped by Jehovah's Witnesses. So many kids are confused by gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction and told by Michael Todd that maybe God was wrong when what you're doing is right. 
then all these people are turned off Christianity because it doesn't feel like God. And, you know, how would a God let these things happen? He doesn't. These false teachers misrepresent our God and introduce dangerous heresies. Don't believe everything a self-proclaimed preacher says. Fact check them. Fact check me. I'm not immune to mistakes. If something doesn't set right with you, do research in the Bible. Prepare yourself with knowledge and be ready to explain your faith when needed. And the best thing, uh, as always, may be to just pray for awareness of false teachers, for knowledge of what teachings are true, and for the words and actions to help those who are led astray. So let's pray right now. Dear God, thank you for us being able here to gather here uh, and hear about your word, to try to learn about these false teachers so that we can best be armed uh, to expose them, to help others, and to ultimately lead them to you. Uh, thanks for this time of worship that we have, uh, and for the people who you know, take their time out of the day to prepare it. In your name I pray. Amen.